So in these uh, afternoon talks, I propose to take particular themes from the sadhana, uh, broadly in uh, the, the order in which they appear in the sadhana, and uh, thereby help us to focus attention on, uh, on the progress of, of the sadhana. Um, I suggested doing this rather rashly about six months ago, and it's one of the terrible things about the way in which we plan that you have an idea six months ago and then suddenly you find yourself on a, on a stage doing something. And uh, I realized that we're actually going to be doing quite a lot of meditation and I can already feel my um, discursive mind beginning to shut down. Um, so maybe by the end I'll, I'll have nothing to say. I doubt it. I usually have, but um, let's say, let's see. So I want to focus today on the, really what's represented in our practice today by the uh, prostration practice um, and by the visualization of the tree of refuge and respect or refuge and reverence, you could even say. It's a quite important correction that Bante made in 2009 uh, to our understanding of the refuge tree, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, so the, the practice doesn't, in, in, in the written sadhana, it doesn't emphasize this much. It's emphasized in merely a few words. Of course, it's first hinted at in the words that we develop the, uh, the, the, the moods of nisarana and great compassion. Nisarana uh, means not going for refuge, uh, not refuge, sorry. I, I thought I'd satisfied him. Huh? Ah. It's Shara. Huh? The Sanskrit for refuge is Shara. Yes, yeah. So the text says Shara. Ah. So it means that I'm telling you Okay. Well, okay, comes the same thing. No, thank you. Uh, it's worth getting it right. I was merely following Bante, but a better authority is here. Um, so yes, it, it, it means turning your back on, apparently. Uh, in other words, renunciation. It means leaving behind, which means the same as nisharana, uh, if it had happened to be that. Um, and then the, the uh, opening uh, verses say... Um, uh, I and all else that moves and, and till enlightenment take the guru and the triple gem as refuge. So refuge is represent, represented, which we know all about. There's not much for us to say about that. But all the way through the sadhana, the, the theme of reverence is repeated again and again and again. Uh, you know, for instance, right at the end of the stuti, which you say, um, whatever it is, uh, uh, four times, three times, 12 times, uh, to thee, Manjugosha, I bow. And all the way through the, the sadhana, the, the theme of reverence is very strong. I see uh, turning your back on renunciation and going for refuge as uh, specific sort of uh, aspects of reverence in, in, in for, this, for this particular purpose. So, ni uh, sadhana. Uh, is turning your back on what you cannot revere and what perhaps you have been revering and shouldn't have been revering. 
Uh, it means letting go of things that you've been uh, holding on to that keep you from reverencing what is really worthwhile. And I, th I, I think it's important at the beginning of the practice to spend some time actually reflecting a bit on that. My own uh, pattern is to spend a little bit of time on uh, reflecting on what I know I need to let go of. And I then repeat that at the end of the practice in, the, um, in, a, in a set of daily vows I make uh, after the, uh, uh, the dedication. But uh, spending a little bit of time just reflecting on what I need to let go of so that then I can more readily uh, let go into the, the sadhana and particularly into, into Manjukosha in this particular context. Uh, of course, in a way, it's pretty obvious for most of us what reverence means, and I, I'm sure that one might think there's not much that needs to be said about it. But uh, it has been, uh, in my mind, quite a bit recently, especially after reading Bhante's reflections on the Garava Sutta. Um, I, I read it when it first came out and uh, was very touched by it, very pleased by it, and uh, found myself in agreement with it, or found that it was in agreement with me, which is much more gratifying, uh, and found that, uh, in a way, it didn't sort of tell me anything very new. I've thought a lot about the Garava Sutta. I've heard Bhante talk about it a lot. Um, and uh, the style is dictated by uh, Bhante's position in condition uh, that he can't read, so he has to dictate. Uh, so it has a, uh, a it's, it's very simple in style, and uh, it, it's um, it's it's internal logic is not always clearly expressed. So it moves sometimes from topic to topic uh, without all the joining. Um, elements that Bante would usually put. Uh, so it seems almost episodic. Um, but nonetheless, even at uh, a, a relatively superficial reading, it's a very valuable piece of, uh, of thinking and um, exploration. But in India, I was asked by the men's community at Baja to go through uh, some of Bante's recent writing because they find it very difficult to understand and read. Ratnakumar was there. Uh, because uh, a lot of the references are quite Western, cultural, and so on. So uh, I went through it um, over, I think, three sessions of about two hours each. And I actually found that it was a bit of a rush, even going through it that over that time. And... Uh, my appreciation for what Bante was saying was hugely amplified. I realized that he'd been saying a lot more than I'd taken in. I think it's very often the case with Bante. He's a very subtle man. Um, he talks about himself as a complex man, but I think more to the point, he's a subtle man. I think part of the trouble that he's now saying things in this recent style that's dictated by his his semi-blindness and, and his um, lack of sustainable energy, uh, which people are not reading subtly enough. And then uh, 
uh, coming to superficial conclusions which are based upon, you know, particularly sometimes it seems to me, uh, something they bring to it rather than what they're finding in it. Bante's a very subtle thinker and uh, he's still a subtle thinker. And I think one needs to spend quite a lot of time trying to see if you've really got what he's saying. Anyway, I was constrained to try and see if I'd got what he was really saying by taking uh, Indians who are highly intelligent and very uh, dumbically committed, but not familiar with our culture, not particularly uh, educated in our way, if you see what I mean. But in doing so, I really um, appreciated much, much more what Bante is saying. And I think there's things in what he's saying that are very relevant to sadhana in general, and I'll try to apply them to this sadhana in particular. So first of all, of course, uh, Bhante is talking about the Garava Sutta, and he talks about that sutta as uh, revealing to us something of the Buddha's mind. But when the, the Buddha talks about himself as... Uh, um, uh, revering and relying upon the Dhamma, uh, reverencing and relying upon the Dhamma, he is revealing something about the nature of enlightenment, uh, something surprising even in, in a way about the nature of an, in, an enlightenment. But it is interesting, quite a number of Theravada commentary, commentators, even very good ones, are really puzzled by that sutta. They don't, don't quite understand how the Buddha could need to reverence because that's what he says. He says that at the beginning of the sutta, you remember, that he sees that there's nobody he can revere and rely upon, no human he can revere and rely upon, but that to live without revering and relying is painful. It's un un unhappy, it's unpleasant. Um, and the Buddha is saying that. Uh, so that, of, uh, of course, it's, it's not what it would be if we were saying it, but it tells us something that's related to what we experience about what the Buddha's experience is like. It's very powerful indeed. Um, the, the, the mere basic point is extremely powerful and important, that to live without revering and relying is painful, is suffering. Uh, and, and it's a sad indictment of our times that... Uh, uh, that the whole topic of reverence and devotion is vitiated for many people, not for everybody. And even highly intelligent and uh, very sensitive people often are caught by their inability to revere because, of course, of the false idols that have had to fall for us to get where we are now. Uh, so one understands how our culture has come to that point but something very much is lost. And uh, when it is lost, I think it leads to uh, uh, a very unhappy state. Um, I, was, I learned recently uh, that um, Leonard Cohen, uh, no lesser person than Leonard Cohen, who of course was a, a Buddhist practitioner, uh, for a while he was a, a Zen monk, and Mangala met him at Samyeling in, in Scotland uh, in the... 1972 or something like that. Uh, but he was uh, something of a depressive. You can catch something of that in his songs, uh, melancholy. Um, I think that even in his melancholy, he's extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, but um, 
yes, he's something of a depressive and, and thought of himself as suffering from depression. And uh, apparently, so Jotika told me, I've not heard this directly myself, uh, but uh, he, he, he said that as a result of his Buddhist practice, uh, he came to resolve his depression. The way he resolved it was by reverence and gratitude, which is really striking. That when you are able to revere, when you are able to feel unalloyed gratitude, you go into, into, into perspective. When you're, you have nothing that you can revere, you're just left with you, with me. And I quoted recently, I've often quoted this, my poor old mother who was paralyzed uh, for the last eight years of her life, extremely vigorous and uh, uh, um, forthright New Zealander. Uh, and um, she, she just found it so difficult, uh, a woman of vigor and extrovert character, not able to act. And I remember going down to see her one day and uh, her opening comment was, I'm sick of being me. Uh, and that's what happens when there's nothing you can revere and rely upon. Um, she revered and relied upon my father, of course, and he'd gone. Uh, but uh, I think it's a very, very telling point that the Buddha is making, which is relevant to us. What that means for the Buddha, it's, it's a bit difficult to grasp. Uh, and sometimes when the Buddha's telling these stories, he's or uh, speaking in this way, it's it's not to be taken exactly literally. But Bhante certainly says that uh, what the Buddha says about revering and relying upon the Dharma uh, is uh, a revelation of the nature of enlightenment, the nature of, of, of Buddhahood. There's so much else in that, in that paper, which I, I won't go into now because it's not my main point. But uh, right at the end of the, of the, uh, of the, the paper, and he says, first of all, we should not think that when the Buddha says he reveres and relies upon the Dhamma, that there's a, an X which he reveres and relies upon. In other words, we should not fall into a thinking of the Buddha as standing here and the Dhamma as something that stands here, separate from him, that he is revering and relying upon. Um, he leaves it at that, and he leaves it at that, leaves us with a little bit of a Zen-like koan, really. Uh, but then he goes on to say that um, uh, what the Buddha is doing is teaching us how to live. So the Buddha is saying that on his own level, he does something which on our level is reverence. If you see what I mean, this is my reading of what Bhante is saying. That uh, the, the Buddha uh, naturally uh, does what for us is revering. And it's not that he reveres something extra, as it were, that's over and above and separate from him. He's gone beyond all that. The, the, uh, this is made very clear by Brahma Sahampati in his appearance, if you remember, uh, everybody should know this sutta because it's quite a foundational one for Bhante's more recent thinking. But uh, Brahma Sahampati appears after the Buddha has said, 
I will revere and rely upon the, uh, uh, the Dhamma, he comes and says, yes, this is what all the Buddhas of the past have done. Uh, it, it's one of the functions of, uh, of Brahma Sahampati, one of the sort of mythic, um, dramatic functions of, of uh, Brahma Sahampati to make what the Buddha says into something universal, if you see what I mean, to refer it to a, a universal principle. Uh, because we need that, uh, if you see what I mean. We need to know that, that what it's not just the Buddha's personality speaking, it's Buddhahood itself speaking. But Brahma Sahampati then goes on to say that um, uh, the Buddhas uh, revere the Dhamma, but the Buddha's disciples revere uh, the Dhamma as the expression of the Buddha's uh, uh, the expression of the Buddha's teaching. They revere the Buddha's teaching as Dharma, if you see what I mean. So um, that I, I find extremely significant, and I find significant for this practice in a way that I'll draw out, I hope, in a minute, if I can collect my thoughts around it. So you've got two levels of reverence. You've got the reverence that... Um, uh, the Buddha experiences for the Dhamma, uh, and you've got the the reverence that disciples uh, experience for what well, you could even say for the Buddha himself, as well as for the Dhamma. The Buddha is the embodiment of the Dhamma, even, but the, the Buddha's teaching. Um, I think you've got another level of of reverence, which Bhante alludes to in the in the paper, which is reverence for. Um, Heroes, if you like. Um, well, he talks about, you know, first of all, historical heroes. I remember he, he mentioned uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, sorry, non-English. Um, she wasn't a Queen of Scotland, I assure you. Um, uh, but uh, it, it, I, I rather enjoyed that because she's always been a hero of mine. Um, but uh, Bante said that, you know, very early on in his life, he sort of revered her. He put it like that. He felt reverence for her. And then as his life went on, he engaged with art and literature, and he began to revere um, great figures in literature, um, especially, of course, the great Dr. Johnson. Uh, but uh, so he's talking about reverence here, not in relation to the Dhamma, relation, in relation to culture, in relation to history, um, so that gives us, I think, a third level of reverence. And uh, he then goes on to talk about his reverence for the Buddha. Then he talks about his reverence for his own teachers. So uh, I think we get a kind of uh, a, a definite sense of, of different kinds of reverence or different objects of reverence, which call forth different kinds of reverence. And quite important to get them straight. And part of what I think the Garava Sutta does is help us to be able to revere on the more ordinary levels, if you see what I mean. Um, because if, uh, if we're not able to revere on the highest level, that faculty of reverence, which I think is essential to being a human being, and if it's not expressed, becomes... Depression and cynicism uh, becomes the, the, the tendency to cut and to, to uh, chop away and fault find. 
um, if it's not expressed uh, in, at the highest level, it, it does tend to find heroes at the ordinary level, and no ordinary hero can sustain the full burden of that ideal reverence, if you see what I mean. I think this is part of our current debate. People need to sort out uh, how you can revere without idealizing, if you see what I mean. And I think you can only revere without idealizing if you can revere ideally, if you see what I mean. If you have reverence for the highest ideal, I think that then you can revere safely uh, at lower levels. If you can't, then what happens is you project the ideal onto a living human being, and no human being can sustain that. No human being can sustain it. Because uh, to be a human being means to exist within space and time. And to exist within space and time means not to be universal. It means to be something particular. It cannot be otherwise. Uh, nobody can be all things to all uh, humanity. Uh, only the Buddha, as the ideal Buddha, can be all things. Only Avalokiteshvara, as the ideal, can be all things to all. Uh, but um, if we haven't really been able to, to revere accurately, so, so to speak, at the highest level, when we revere at a lower level, we mix it up with ideal, and then it goes wrong. Bitter disappointment follows. I've often talked about this in relation to my own difficulties with Bhante in the early 2000s. Um, no need to go into what it was. It's familiar stuff. And um, uh, for a while, I sort of fell out of connection with Bhante, not from his side at all, but from mine. And uh, I found my way back on a long solitary retreat. Basically, I realized uh, to live without reverence uh, was deep suffering. And uh, so I got myself to do prostration practice every day, uh, overcoming some resistance. And there's that man sitting there right at the front. Um, and um, it, after a few days, I realized what I'd been doing I've been thinking of Bhante as the ideal. I'm going for refuge to the Buddha uh, and the Dhamma and the Sangha and uh, the Bodhisattvas and so forth. I'm not going for refuge to Bhante as the ideal. I'm going for refuge to the ideal through Bhante. It's through Bhante that I've known those ideals, no question. I could not have known them. I could not have connected with them without Bhante. And I revere him very highly, very deeply uh, because of that. I, I still think he's uh, the most remarkable human being I've ever met, uh, even though he has a personality, um, uh, etc. Um, but uh, once you're able to revere at the highest level, then you can allow yourself to revere at uh, all the lower levels, if you see what I mean. You can revere those who for you are the gateways to the Dhamma. You can revere those who are gateways to higher human experience in the sense of uh, the great figures of, of human culture. 
uh, you know, the Marks and the Shakespeare's, etc., etc., uh, who uh, live in in our minds if if we've been brought up on them. They live; they're living presences in my in my being, and uh, uh, you, you you can revere them because you know you're not you're not idealizing them. You're revering them because at the cultural level they open up to something further, something higher. And you can revere and respect even you know, your Kalyanamitras who are human, all too human, and, uh, but you revere them and you respect them and you uh, uh, have a certain degree of devotion to them because you can revere what they open you up to whilst seeing them with all their warts. So I think it's an extremely important point that unless you can revere at the highest level, reverence at lower levels goes wrong and uh, uh, then turns back on itself, becomes betrayal, disillusionment, and often even antagonism, opposition, uh, because that the bitterness of disappointed idealism is uh, destructive. It can be destructive internally and externally. Um, it's going to happen. I've done it and I've had it done to me. Uh, people have idealized me and then realized I wasn't quite that good. Um, and then they've turned on me and you have to sort of ride with it and keep trying to point to something higher, something further, uh, something that can sustain ideal. So I think this is why Bante uh, really uh, tries to uh, amend our understanding of the refuge tree as a tree of refuge and respect or reverence, he said sometimes, uh, because uh, when you look closely at some of the, the teachers of the past, and maybe even look closely at some of the teachers of the present, uh, they can't sustain idealization. Tibetans, of course, always say that you should revere your, your guru as the Buddha. I think they have a different kind of uh, mental makeup, uh, which allows them to play both. I remember a, a friend of mine saying that, uh, a Spanish friend of mine who is in, in Lhasa, uh, uh, on a visit with a Tibetan friend, and uh, he went to the Jokong, the, the, uh, the main temple in the center of Lhasa, and there was the Panchen Lama sitting on his throne, uh, you know, doing what Lamas do. And his friend was, um, you know, prostrating again and again and again in front of the Panchen Lama and uh, uh, went forward very reverentially, got his blessing, you know, took his, um, his kata and his thread and so forth and reverentially tied it on himself. The next day they were out in the streets of Lhasa and a military cavalcade came by, a, a line of jeeps. And... Uh, in, the, in one of the jeeps in the center, uh, there was uh, a Tibetan man sitting there in a chubba. Um, and um, so my friend turned to his Tibetan friend and said, oh, who's that? And uh, the Tibetan friend said, oh, some Tibetan official. It was actually the Panchen Lama. <laughs> but he was able to um, keep both views of him. When he's on the throne, He's the representative of the ideal. When he's in the back of a Chinese jeep, he's a, perhaps even a traitor. Um, uh, so he's able to sustain both. We, we, we for better or worse, 
a more uh, literal, um, a play a different logic. Um, we play the logic of A is A and not A is uh, not, anyway, <laughs> um, uh, the laws of thought. So uh, it, it's, it, it's extremely important that we do uh, allow, our, oh yeah, that's right, so back to the, the, the gurus of the past. When you look at their lives, they, they do not always sustain that sort of, um, uh, of reverence. Uh, they, they do not represent necessarily the ideal, although they're presented in tradition as full and perfect Buddhas and so on. Uh, when you look closely, they're not. That uh, They have their defects. Don't we know it? Um, so, uh, but still, they were great Buddhist heroes, the way Bhante put it. They, they lived heroically for the Dhamma, and they, uh, they even sacrificed themselves for the Dhamma, and they uh, worked uh, tirelessly to spread the Dhamma. So even though they were less than perfect, uh, they exemplify for us uh, in a way that we still need to emulate uh, a, a kind of ideal Buddhist uh, who is on the path. But we can do that if we're able to disentangle the ideal from its humble human uh, acolytes. I think it's a very, very important point. And I think it's part of what sadhana enables us to do. If we can really revere Manjugosha, uh, we can then revere on all the other levels. We can respect uh, people for ordinary goodness. Uh, we can even reverence them in a certain sense for ordinary goodness. We can reverence those who do um, uh, chart uh, the higher reaches of the human spirit uh, through art and literature. Uh, we, can, we can revere them. Except beyond us, they're opening up something that's more than us. And we can revere uh, the, uh, the Buddhist heroes, uh, and in, indeed foremost amongst them, our own teacher, who, who has enabled us to connect with all of this. So uh, in, in doing sadhana practice in general, and for me and probably for many of you, doing the Manjugosha Stuti sadhana enables me to revere at every level uh, and to revere safely at every level. I can let go my full uh, idealistic reverence uh, for the Buddha, uh, for, the, for Manjugosha as the closest representation of the Buddha that I, 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 I'm in contact with. And uh, I can love him in an in a absolutely wholehearted, unreserved, totally safe way. Uh, and the difficulty is um, actually getting my emotions sufficiently stimulated and connected for that to happen. Manju Gosha is just there, waiting uh, above it all, as it were. So, uh, although this is a wider application than the specific practice, the Manjugosha practice, I think it's important that we think this all through. Because I think unless you can revere on lower levels, it's difficult to revere on higher levels. Uh, of course, mutatis mutandis, if you can't uh, revere on higher levels, you can't revere on lower levels, as I've just expressed. Or your revering on lower levels will be vitiated. Uh, by um, the imperfections of those you revere. Um, 
So uh, it's an an issue that's applicable to all sadhana, and it's why I think something like sadhana is essential to a a fully uh, rounded Dhamma life. Uh, Of course, it's important that one reflects on the the empty nature of things, as we're going to see uh, day after tomorrow, if I last that long. Um, of course, it's important. It's important that we we practice in the context of the bodhicitta. It's important that we practice to the point of no practice. It, all of that is extremely important. Uh, but a rounded dharma life, I think, cannot really take place without a high degree of reverence, because what it means if you don't revere is that uh, your uh, you're packaging your experience in too narrow a box. It may be, in a certain sense, quite deep, maybe even quite strong, but it's limited, uh, and the whole of you is not engaged. I think it's one of the, the wonderful things that Bante has given us, is a whole Dhamma life. And one of the, the problems that we face is that secular uh, forms of Buddhism, and that's our main problem, uh, from outside is, is, is secularization of Buddhism. In other words, the, the assimilation of the Dhamma to an ordinary individualistic life. Uh, and what Bhante has shown us is an ample approach uh, to, to, to practicing the Dhamma. And this practice and all sadhana practice enables us, especially in the first place, it'll do the others in a while, enables us to revere unashamedly, fully, Tears flowing down our faces, um, uh, whole body responding. Uh, I'm not sure I ought to say this. I used to get an erection when I did the Pisaka, but I'm, you're safe now. But um, uh, your whole body responding, uh, blushing, my face blushing, um, laughter sometimes. Uh, the, 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 the sadhana can invoke that extent of, of response. And because it's such a rich sadhana, I think it. Uh, entices more and more of you into it. So, I've said one of the most important things I want to say, but I want to talk a little bit about reverence within the uh, the, the transcendental dynamic of the, the sadhana itself. Just a few words about that. Because I think the, the transcendental dynamic, as I'm calling it, the transcendental narrative, uh, a drama, of the sadhana illustrates precisely Bhante's point. It illustrates precisely that um, uh, the enlightened mind has the character of reverence. Because, uh, of course, we start by sending rays of reverence which invite uh, Manjugosha uh, and he appears to us. And we hear as the, 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 the sadhana goes on, uh, that Manjugosha is um, the Jnanasattva. He becomes the Jnanasattva. That's what, in the drama of it, happens when the uh, Jnana Amrita takes place. The Samaya Sattva, who is simply the, the painting of our own, our own reverence, is transformed into a, a, a figure who is illumined. I'll be saying more about this uh, if I get there. Um, But in the stuti itself, we learn something altogether more mysterious. 
because you, we learn that um, uh, Manjukosha is pure from the start and arrived at the end of the ten bhumis. In other words, the, 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 uh, the, the, the stuti uh, ex expresses a, uh, a perspective on Manjukosha as um, uh, transcending time and eternity. Um, you know, let's not get too philosophical about this, but that's what, that's what the, 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 the Stuti is saying, that uh, he's always been pure, and he's been through the whole process of purification. Now, if we start to parse it like that, you can start to quarrel with it. So let's not do that. But what we're told essentially is that Manjukosha is both, both Bodhisattva and Buddha. He's Bodhisattva insofar as he's traversing the, the, uh, uh, the Bhumis, and he's Buddha insofar as he's been pure from the start. And uh, I don't think this is a philosophical point. This is a mystery. Uh, it's uh, a mystery that is to be reflected upon in, uh, in deep meditation, not to be um, analyzed uh, um, Metaphysically, if you analyze it metaphysically, it falls apart and it uh, sort of defies itself. But uh, what what I'm wanting to say now is that you're contemplating a Buddha. Uh, in uh, in later tradition, in, in early Mahayana, Manjugosha is probably the first Bodhisattva to appear, as far as I can understand. I think scholars have have, have found that his uh, references to him are much earlier than to any other Bodhisattva. Uh, but as is the, the, the habit of um, the Buddhist tradition, what is initially, uh, as it were, a, a representative of a subordinate level begins to take a central place and ascend to the highest level. So Manjugosha, like all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, when they're focused upon, goes to the center of the mandala and he becomes a Buddha, in, the, in particularly the Vajrayana. Um, so... We are contemplating Manjugosha as both Buddha and Bodhisattva. But as Buddha and Bodhisattva, we're presented with a little glimpse into the enlightened mind. Because once we've evoked Manjugosha, Manjugosha himself expresses reverence and invites the five Buddhas, the five Buddha Mandala, which is a wonderful moment in the Sadhana when you, you, you see Manjugosha himself revering uh, the, the, the mandala. And uh, the, um, the, the, the five Buddhas then anoint him, uh, they consecrate him uh, with the, the jnana amrita, uh, the, uh, uh, the nectar of their own wisdom, uh, their particular wisdoms, of course. Five are really not five, and so on. So I think in that, in that uh, little drama there, which is really almost at the heart of the sadhana, we're being presented with um, the same mystery as we're presented with in the Garava Sutta. Uh, the Buddha reveres the Dhamma. Manjugosha reveres the five Buddhas who then transform him effectively into them. So in... in uh, in us, quite literalistically, quite uh, uh, simp simply, almost fairy tale way, the way you'd, you'd look at a fairy tale or a myth, you just watch it happening. 
and you allow yourself to, uh, to experience it happening. But you're being let into the mind of enlightenment. Even if he's a bodhisattva, he's a tenth Bhumi bodhisattva, uh, which is uh, but one uh, fraction of a hair's breadth away from enlightenment itself. Uh, and, uh, well, we're told he's actually pure from the start. So uh, you're being let into a, a deep, deep mystery of the enlightened mind, which is being played out in front of you. You are revering uh, reverence itself. Uh, you are revering what is reverence at its highest level beyond all possibility of uh, um, reverence being transitive, something that is revered, if you see what I mean. So uh, if, you can, if you can open up to what's happening there, if you can open up to reverence in this highest level, you can then revere yourself at your level, uh, unashamedly, unreservedly, without your fingers crossed, without uh, uh, holding on to the handholds of, uh, of reason. You can just let yourself go to full, wholehearted reverence. And you're revering, in a sense, reverence. Uh, reverence embodied, reverence lived. And if you can let yourself revere in that way, you can reverence the man who opened this up to you. Um, Bhante's handed this to us. He's handed it to us. To us. He's explained the practice to us. He's, uh, when he explained the practice in that seminar, something happened. Um, uh, I, I remember it so vividly that just sitting in that lounge at Padmaloka and uh, the sense that uh, I was in contact with a reality that was way beyond my understanding. And uh, Bante was mediating that. I mean, people talking about Bante not having insight. What a load of cods. Um, this man, you're just pouring it out. Uh, and uh, so delicately, so precisely, uh, so clearly. Uh, so you can revere him, even though, even though, dot, dot, dot. Um, uh, and you can let yourself do that because you know you're not putting him on that highest level. You're aligning him with that highest level. And then you can revere, you know, your dear uh, friends and Kalyanamitras, who, um, your elders and betters, who you know very well their nasty little habits. Uh, but still, they are the ones who uh, enable you to, to connect. Um, without them, you can't do it. And if you do it yourself, you think it's your achievement. And that then becomes a problem. It turns back on itself. There's a problem with uh, an overly cognitive, uh, personally based uh, approach. It needs to be softened and broadened, especially by reverence. And then you can, you can revere the, the, the cultural heroes, who, even though you know they lived less than ideal lives um, at times, but you can revere them for what they did uh, um, uh, reveal. And in a way, the, the, the figure of Van Gogh came into my mind. Sorry, Van Gogh came into my mind. It must be because Akasha Shur is sitting there, who's a great devotee of uh, Vincent. <laughs> um, van Gogh, Van Gogh. Uh, okay, we won't try any further. But uh, yeah, you know, 
he wasn't an entirely stable human being. Uh, but what he revealed uh, through his painting uh, was something of another level. Um, whether, you know, we don't want to try to sort of say it's this or that or the other, but definitely you sense in looking at his painting something more is revealed. Anyway, we could name so many things. Um, so yes, the practice is a practice in reverence. It's a practice in reverence that relates us to reverence at its highest level and that reveals to us or opens to us or invites us into the mystery of reverence uh, at its fullest and most complete. And because we can do that, we can do it at every other level and we can make a contribution to our, our modern world which uh, is so suspicious of reverence. And for good reasons. Look what reverence did in the 20th century. Look what over-reliance on, on uh, uh, false heroes did. Um, so it's understandable, people's reliance on, on the, on the uh, uh, ecclesiastical structures betrayed them. So it's understandable. But if we can uh, learn to allow reverence at its highest level, I think we can make a really big contribution to our world, which badly needs uh, something to revere uh, that is, um, will not betray. That's why the refugees are refugees. Uh, they're refugees because they cannot let you down. They don't have the ingredients in them that can let you down, if you see what I mean. Uh, they are unalloyedly uh, reliable. So, uh, I hope that at least focuses a little bit on uh, a dimension of, of uh, doing this particular sadhana and any sadhana and a little bit on our lives. Because what I experienced through doing the Manjugosha Stuti Sadhana is that I've learned to live it. Bhante says that in the Garava Sutta, in saying that he reveres and relies upon the Dhamma, the Buddha is teaching us how to live. Manjugosha is teaching us how to live. Uh, he is teaching us essentially to revere, uh, to have reverence as part of our lives. I feel this very strongly and deeply myself when I'm most in contact with the practice, which is not always. When I'm most in contact with the practice, sometimes I want to touch the feet of, uh, of so many. I'm half, half Indian, <laughs> so touching, my, uh, touching the feet is natural. Um, but uh, yes, you, you can only do that when you recognize where they stand in relation to the highest ideal. So uh, I think that the sadhana is teaching us to revere in our daily lives, to live a reverential life. And a reverential life is a life worth living. A life without reverence is depression, cynicism and bitterness. Uh, so uh, we, we can actually work to bring the, 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 the meaning of the sadhana in terms of reverence into our daily life. It will happen to some degree naturally, but if we sort of consciously allow it, it will uh, naturally flow into all aspects of our lives and uh, rid, of, rid us of the 
individualistic cynicism uh, and uh, uh, disillusionment with which we've all been brought up uh, to, to greater or lesser degree. And, uh, and I'm going to say similar things about every aspect each night. I'm going to be, each afternoon, I'm going to be looking at aspects of the sadhana and seeing how they teach us how to live. But that's all I have to say about reverence today. I hope it's been useful.